Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 10th, the Monday morning, 2022, at least the Monday morning uh, on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, it's going to be quite a week. It already has been quite a week on the international political front. Of course, the war in Ukraine um, is reaching uh, a certain crescendo, perhaps, hopefully, an end point. Uh, but China is getting involved. China is talking about de-escalating the war. Perhaps China is the way in which the West can reach Vladimir Putin, get into his head. Um, China's uh, economy continues to be quite turbulent. Chinese chip stocks have tumbled today after U.S. calls for new curbs on high-tech tech. Even um, when it comes to tech, Elon Musk, as he always manages to do, has um, stumbled into Chinese politics, making a, a very inappropriate comment about Taiwan. All of this, I think, speaks to a, a meta issue of China's role in the world of uh, wanting to change or break the new world order to make it perhaps the Chinese world order. And this is a particularly important week for uh, this emerging, if it is indeed an emerging Chinese world order. Next weekend uh, on Sunday, uh, China is to hold its 20th Communist Party Congress uh, on uh, October the 16th, particularly important because it's bound up in the rise to power of Xi Jinping uh, and how he is accumulating, it would seem at least to many observers, more and more power. Uh, many pieces in the press today about the impact of this Congress on China and the world's economy. The Times, the New York Times uh, has a piece about what it means for business um, there's even pieces about who will succeed Xi Jinping in the war, in the Washington Post. One wonders whether that's a bit presumptuous. Um, but one or two guys who are following this story with a great deal of care are my guests today. They're the co-authors of a new book on Xi Jinping, the uh, all-powerful leader of uh, China, of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's appropriately called Xi Jinping, the most powerful man in the world. Um, they are two powerful men from the world of media. They're both German, Stefan Aust and Adrian uh, Geiges, and they're both joining us um, from somewhere near Hamburg. Um, perhaps, um, uh, uh, Stefan, uh, we might begin with you. Um, how important is this week in your analysis in Xi Jinping's accumulation of power, if that's the right way of putting it. How significant do you believe the 20th Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party will be on October the 16th? Well, actually, when we started working on this book, we did not expect that we would uh, end up in a situation like this. We didn't even know at that time when this Party Congress will be. But actually, uh, we thought that um, that's why we called the book uh, the most important, the most powerful man in the world, that nobody really knows who is the real person behind the rise of um, China to world power. 
um, we just wanted to tell a story of a person coming from uh, an important family uh, with, a, with a, a father and a mother and the, and the party uh, hierarchy and, and getting to the top power position in one of the biggest and actually probably uh, in the near future most powerful countries uh, in the world. But that we would end uh, in a situation when when uh, we have the book coming out in, in America and, and England, English-speaking countries, uh, ex exactly to the point when he tries to uh, get his, um, uh, his uh, power position uh, as long as he lives, uh, we didn't expect that and we did not expect uh, to to be in a war between Ukraine and 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 well, and nobody Russia. did, Stefano. Although conspiracy theories might suggest that Xi knew that this book was coming out, and so he organized the Congress <laughs> to coincide with. Um, <laughs> well, our influence was rather big there, but not quite as big as you think. <laughs> well, I hope uh, you've certainly been very influential in me, with me in terms of this book, uh, Adrian. <laughs> tell me about this man, a very complicated man. And astonishingly, given his power, whether or not he's the most powerful man in the world, of course, is debatable, but he's certainly amongst the most powerful. Mm. But what's more astonishing is how little is known about this man. Tell me about him, Xi Jinping. Exactly. That's astonishing. I mean, we know uh, so many, there are so many books about uh, Donald Trump or Barack Obama and, and so on. And Xi Jinping, as you said, is so influential and uh, most people know nothing about him. Yes, who he is. I mean, the whole book is about it, but to make a long story short, I mean, um, he is from a very important family in China. His father, Xi Zhongxun, was one of the leaders of the communist revolution. Uh, he joined uh, Mao Zedong in the so-called Long March, which was like the founding story of the People's Republic, uh, 120,000 communists going to the countryside to find a new way to, to have victory in the civil war. Only 8,000 of them survived, and uh, Xi Jinping, the father, is one of them, and also was one of their leaders there, and also um, Xi Jinping's uh, mother, Xi Jinping, was a fighter with a weapon in the hand in this uh, revolutionary uh, war. So um, Xi Jinping, the father, became the vice premier of the People's Republic of China after the revolution. So um, Xi Jinping in 1953 was born in a very influential and, uh, of course, privileged uh, Family. Yeah, he's, uh, as as the term goes, um, he's he's red aristocracy. He's classic red aristocracy. But, but the story gets more complicated, doesn't it, in terms of his father? Because he, 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 his father, as with so many other powerful figures within the Chinese Communist Party, had his, to put it politely, ups and downs. Absolutely. So uh, he was the so-called princeling, uh, son of the high leader. But then in 1962, his father fell in disgrace. Uh, uh, Mao thought him to be a traitor, though there had not been real reasons for this. But there always had been these power struggles within the Communist Party. His father was put under house arrest, uh, later was tortured, uh, put into prison. 
And also Xi Jinping himself, as a, a very young boy, experienced this not only... So this the was the cultural... Uh, Adrian, this was the cu cultural revolution. They were yeah, victims well, of the cultural revolution, of a, of a radical leftism. Were they... Was, did Mao see these people... Sorry, go on. Yeah, 1962 even was four years before the cultural revolution, but this was like kind of the beginnings. And then in 1966, four years later, when the Cultural Revolution started, Xi Jinping himself became a victim. And uh, like actually all young people in that uh, from the cities in that time, uh, he was uh, exiled to the countryside. Mao had the idea that the poor peasants should re-educate the intellectual youth, the students and so on from the cities. And, uh, but for uh, Xi Jinping, this was especially hard because, I mean, he came from this privileged family and suddenly he had to live in a cave in the mm. countryside. Under let's, uh, let, let, let's bring uh, Stefan back in. In a funny way, listening to this, Stefan, mm -hmm. um, it almost vindicates the Cultural Revolution. It was designed to make men like Xi Jinping, to, to toughen them up. Is that yeah. fair? Actually, that's that, that's rather a good idea you just uh, uh, pronounced. Um, I think the Cultural Revolution was was a was a big movement where the strong ideas uh, tried to win, uh, and at the same time, and maybe uh, that is one of the reasons why Mao Zedong started this whole uh, uh, Cultural Revolution to find out who will be strong enough uh, to follow him. Um, and actually, most of the time, when you when you have a, some kind of a revolution or some kind of a war or, or civil uprising or whatsoever, uh, it changes the whole situation, um, and and the structures that have been before just collapse, and 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 new ideas and new powers and, and new strong men um, come to the uh, even even women at that time already uh, come to the come to the top. Uh, I don't know whether Mao expected what in the end will, will come out of the Cultural Revolution. But I think he wanted to shake, shake the whole thing up. Um, in, in your mind, uh, uh, Stefan, is this purge and the consequences for Xi Jinping as a young man and the fate of his father, is this the defining event in his life? Is this what made Xi Jinping Xi Jinping? Uh, definitely. Uh, he probably, uh, well, we, do, we don't have a, a, a way to look into his, uh, to his head and his, in his brain, but I'm quite sure that during the Cultural Revolution and when his father was in prison and when, when he was in prison and, and the whole system as, as they knew it uh, uh, ended in a big uprising from, from all the kinds of uh, different party uh, uh, parts, he certainly uh, would have thought, what do I do now? Do I try to leave the country uh, and go to America or to Europe or to Russia or wherever? Or do I stay? And if I stay, which way am I going to go? So this will probably be the point when he thought which way he wanted to go. And which kind of which kind of power he would try to get, and obviously he is very very close to the whole Chinese idea, to the whole Chinese history, so that he thinks he is in a in a certain way uh, representing the Chinese history. 
Well, in a, as he, he, he could claim it as, as well as anyone. Um, let's bring Adrian back in. Adrian, you've written this book. You're both fairly powerful uh, German uh, journalists with lots of access, certainly in Germany and Europe. How much access did you have for this book? Did you get to talk to people around Xi Jinping? Well, I mean, I had been a correspondent in China for 10 years and I'm speaking Chinese and uh, we got a lot of information uh, from the archives because the interesting thing is now Xi Jinping is kind of a very secret person. But before, before he was the leader of the country, he was famous in China mainly as the husband of Peng mm. Lian, his wife, who is a very famous, very famous singer in China, like Beyonce in the United States. And uh, they had, in that time, there had been a lot of interviews of the uh, Chinese media with him um, in, uh, as the husband of, as a local leader also, but also as the husband of Peng Lian. And in that time, he quite openly spoke about his life story. As for the time after he became the leader, yes, we have interviewed uh, a uh, lot of people who met him and uh, who uh, are uh, close to him, but also we used he, all his speeches because the interesting thing about a socialist country, whether it was the Soviet Union or whether it's now China, everything the leader says is published in collected books. And this gives a very complete picture of his thinking which maybe before us, nobody he, knows. Yeah, I mean, it's the old question. I apologize. I'm sure you have to deal with this question mm -hmm. every time you do an interview. But um, is he a, a conventional communist, Leninist, Maoist, whatever words you want to use? I mean, does he believe? He looks too smart and he behaves too smart to believe in that nonsense. Does he believe in any of it? He actually is a very convinced uh, communist because... But what does he, that mean to be a convinced communist in perhaps yeah. the most successful capitalist country he in the is, world? It's like being in a surreal yes, world. Yes. I, I think he's convinced that only a one-party system, uh, a communist one-party system, uh, can hold China together and get people uh, so organized that they start to work, that, that uh, they, they continue to work, uh, that that the wealth doesn't make him a communist, Stefan. That makes him an authoritarian, a technocrat, a centralizer. But what's the communist then? It's it's not much of a difference because uh, mm -hmm. when you think about communism, a couple of decades before, uh, if you think about uh, East Germany or about Russia or about the China before, they were communist and socialist countries where uh, there was no public, uh, no no private enterprise. Uh, no, no careers in business, but in fact, what they are, they have, they have a still communist one-party system. Uh, but at the same time, it's a, it's a capitalist, capitalist system. At the same time, it's not uh, the, the straight communist. Um, yeah, I, I take that point. But what, how is it different form? from, say, hmm? Singapore, which has never claimed to be communist? Well, Singapore is more a democracy than China. Definitely. Which isn't saying Although, much, but it's still not much of a democracy. No, it's true. But when you when you look at China now, and actually we, um, well, I I didn't live in in China, uh, but I was traveling quite a lot and had had quite a few interviews. So uh, I remember uh, I had an interview uh, in with Lee Kuan Yew 
in, in, in Singapore years ago. And that was the time when the Chinese went to Singapore to, to find out why they were so successful and trying to imitate a lot of things uh, that Singapore did before. And this is a Let's very bring, uh, yeah, I want to bring, um, I want to bring uh, Adrian back in. A Adrian, what, what is or was the relationship between uh, Xi Jinping and Deng Xiaoping, who, of course, was, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but seems to be the architect mostly of the Chinese miracle between Mao and, and the <laughs> contemporary age? Exactly right. You are exactly right. And uh, that's a very good question, because on the one hand, uh, Xi Jinping profits from uh, uh, how uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, developed China. I mean, uh, Xi Jinping is only so powerful because Deng Xiaoping made China to an economically uh, uh, very fast developing country. But on the other hand, I mean, Xi Jinping sometimes refers to Deng Xiaoping, but very seldom actually because he takes back a lot of things which had been part of the reform. So is it a return? Um, is he returning to Mao in a peculiar way, jumping back? Or in, what in, element in, about in, Deng Xiaoping is he rejecting the, the, the relatively in, liberal politics? I think in a certain way, yes. Uh, but because the main reason for the rise of uh, wealth uh, and, and power of China is opening the borders and being becoming part of the uh, economic system uh, of the whole world. And it looks like that he's closing the doors again, at least uh, uh, quite, quite a bit, uh, to concentrate more on China itself. Stefan, we've done a number of shows on, on China. I find it fascinating, although hmm. I don't know much about it. Um, I don't know much about anything, to be honest. But uh, one of the um, one of the issues, of course, is China's so-called surveillance state. We did a show with Josh Chin, one of the co-authors of a new book called Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. Also with a, another German journalist, Kai Strittmatter. I'm sure you're familiar with mm. his book. Oh, we yes. have been mm. harmonized. To what extent, Stefan, is the so-called surveillance state that is being pioneered in China, this highly centralized, authoritarian, perhaps even totalitarian digital state. To what extent is that the defining quality of Xi Jinping's uh, regime? When we look back in 50 years, is that what we're going to most remember about his contribution to Chinese history? Def definitely, it will be a, a very important part. If you think back, uh, 1984 is not such a long time ago. But when you look back into George Orwell's book and what, what he was describing as a surveillance state, this is nothing. This is uh, childhood games compared to what um, modern technology makes possible in um, looking at the, at the daily life of people, looking into their past, looking uh, probably even into their future. Uh, and... Um, uh, the, the, if, if, if we look back into a communist state like East Germany, uh, when after a unification, uh, you could look into all the files of uh, the state security system. If you compare that to what is possible now in, in a technical way and what is practiced 
in China and actually a little bit in, in other countries of the world as well. But uh, uh, it, it, uh, the surveilled state is a state of a, a, a diagonal um, dictatorship, and that's what it is. Yeah, we remember, of course, the great uh, German movie, Lives of Others, it showed how mm. much effort Stasi made in watching people's apartments, putting cameras in. Now cameras are ubiquitous. But um, Adrian, uh, we did a show, as I said, with uh, the Wall Street Journal writers, Josh Chin and Lisa Lin. And what Lisa Lin reminded us is that these, these cameras are made in China. So this idea of 1984 2.0, a digital Orwellianism, maybe there's some truth, but it's also reflected in uh, a kind of autarkic race for China to develop its own industries. It's not quite just complete control, is it? Yeah, but it's, as Stefan said already, it's uh, much more than we ever knew before. Only to give you examples. I mean... We had these uh, East German Stasi. They were, for example, they were listening to the to the phone calls. But it was found afterwards that they even did not have enough time to listen. They, they, they taped mm. all the phone calls, but didn't have, in spite of the, uh, it was a big organization, didn't have enough people to, at the end, to listen to all these tapes. Quite different in China now. To give you an example, recent weeks, there have been some uprising because uh, some banks went uh, bankrupt and the people wanted to protest, to demonstrate, to get their money. And then the, 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 the government, to prevent them from demonstrating, put the, the COVID apps of all the people, not only of the people who wanted to demonstrate, but all the people who had been clients of this bank on red. So means on red, they are like if they would be COVID positive, uh, so they could not go to the street to demonstrate, many of them, because their corona app was on red. And this is only possible in a system which uses, I mean, the same algorithm and so on, which, uh, let's say, Google uses, but uses it to get complete control of the people. Mm -hmm. Let's bring uh, Stefan. Stefan, um, as you know, there's two core schools of thought in terms of how the West should deal with Xi Jinping's China. The first is represented by one of my guests recently, Aaron Friedberg, who sees the international system as a zero-sum game and that America needs to treat China as an enemy, maybe not in terms of war, but certainly in terms of economic warfare. The other position is a more liberal, nuanced one by somebody like C. Fred Bergstein, who sees China's investment and commitment to the global system as one in which they have as much investment and commitment in the system as the U.S., and therefore it needs to be a more collaborative relationship. What's your take, uh, Stefan, in terms of what you've unearthed about Xi Jinping uh, as uh, advice for Western leaders like Joe Biden to deal with Xi's well, China. I, I don't know whether he will listen to me. but uh, Well, I'm sure he will. You're it, a wise German, you know, Stefan. Actually, what, what I think is very important that we see that the time when the world was divided into the West and the East and in between was the Berlin Wall uh, and we were always at the edge uh, of, a, of a big nuclear war was not a very good situation. 
And I think the fall of the wall and, and the contacts uh, we had between East and West and, and the opening of China, and if you put all this together, it was, it was uh, I think, important and it was good that it happened. I think it wouldn't be good when we had divided the world into two parts again. And actually, you cannot be sure, you can see that during the war uh, in Ukraine, that not all the countries we think are on the side of the West are really on the side of the West, because the Chinese influence is very strong everywhere. I think what's very interesting and you know, what's very important is that we look into our own interests. What do we really need? What do we want to have? What is our position towards different things? And then at the same time, be in contact with, with the other countries and make business together with them. But make sure all the time what is in our interest. Uh, I mean, the Chinese, and you can see uh, as uh, the articles you showed before, uh, uh, when we started this, this, this talk, that that China is obviously uh, a little bit um, um, different in their views to the Ukraine uh, than Russia, which is in fact on their side. But you can see they are businessmen and they want uh, to to continue to make business with the Western world, um, so that that I think they will have a little bit influence. I hope maybe. Uh, one day they get a little bit more influence on Russia uh, to stop this war. Uh, let, 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 me bring, uh, let, let me bring. Um, uh, let me bring Adrian back in. Adrian, we've had a number of, shall we say, geopologists, if if that's not too extreme, on the show, like Kishore Mahubani, the Singapore-based political analyst. He mm -hmm. wrote a book called "Has China Won?" Yeah, we had a discussion with him. Uh, he's a smart and interesting guy, and it's an important voice. Do you think that he has a point? I mean, what are the, to, to, to date, because I want to get to the future in, in later, but uh, to date, has China won? What are the achievements of Xi Jinping? I mean, he has a point in the sense of that uh, many people in the West, uh, whether it's Europe or the United States, still do not understand that the world has shifted that uh, uh, now, and it's also a natural process, uh, Asia is getting stronger and stronger, like uh, Asia and especially China had been a leading economic and cultural power over thousands of years in history. So that's, a, that's a, not a new thing. They're only coming back. So this is a process which cannot be stopped and should not be stopped and which is okay. The What... Um, maybe these kind of people do not see enough that Xi Jinping is not the same like the Chinese leaders before. He's, as we discussed before, he's not the same like Deng Xiaoping because um, the, before Xi Jinping, yes, uh, Chinese leadership, they called themselves communist, but in fact, they had been very pragmatic. And um, that's why they also took Singapore as an example because they wanted to develop civilization, so to say, developed the country, and uh, this was a good thing. And this was also a time when they had quite uh, good relations, especially trade relations, economic relations, to the West. But Xi Jinping is a guy, he uses the economic power he gained thanks to uh, Deng Xiaoping, but he very much puts 
politics first, ideology first, and uh, very much also wants to use this power uh, going into confrontation with other countries. And this is a very dangerous thing for the world. Let me bring Stefan back in. Stefan, there was a, um, I'm sure you're very familiar with the work of Martin Wolf, the prize-winning FT economics uh, columnist. He's mm -hmm. been on the show before. And he's actually got a new book out and he'll be coming on again, talking about it next year. He had an interesting piece last week that Xi Jinping's third term, he calls a tragic era. He says 10 years is always enough. And he shows uh, in a very uh, compelling piece that the Chinese economy is in bad in a bad condition. Its debt mountain is growing. Uh, household disposable incomes are very low uh, as, a, as, a, as a share of GDP. And the private sector has suffered particularly badly. I think what he's suggesting is there is a need to liberalize the Chinese economy. Do you agree with Martin? Yes, Wolf? I would and agree. Can and you see this more liberal focus on economics, at least, come out of the 16th Congress or come out of the 20th Congress? Uh, actually, I think one of the most important things that uh, divides uh, democracy from a totalitarian state is a regular way when the government is changed, when the leader of the country is changed. And you can even, and I think one of the best things in the American uh, constitution, which is uh, not from the beginning, but it's, it, it was introduced uh, after the Second World War, is that it was, it was a habit that no president would stay more than two terms. I think it is one of the most important things that, that shows the difference between a democracy and an authoritarian state that you have to get rid of the government uh, in normal elections. And I think you can even see in democratic countries that uh, when, when politicians are too long and, and the whole group around together with them is too long in the power position, it's not good for the country and it's not good for the development of the country and it's not good for economics, and it's not good even for the leader uh, of the country itself. So I think it's a big mistake what he does, uh, trying to get a permission uh, to, to stay at the head of the party and the military uh, and the whole country as long as he lives. I think that's a big mistake. And um, I think um, if, if he, he or actually Putin at the same time would take some advice, would mean don't stay in power too long. Adrian, what drives this man? I mean, he looks, I use this word carefully, quite cuddly. He certainly doesn't have the thuggish appearance of, um, of Putin. Putin, of course, was a member of the security services, born in the underclass. This is an <clears throat> aristocrat, a, a red prince. What does he care about? What does he, how does he want to be remembered? He wants to be remembered as the guy who made China big again. Be again referring to the history some thousand years ago in the last thousands of years. And uh, he wants to be himself the guy who is doing this. He does not only want that uh, China become strong, but he wants to be to have this as a part of his uh, or as his personal legacy. He's always talking about the uh, two centenaries. What does he mean by this? First centenary was until um, 
2021, uh, last year, 100 years of Communist Party of China. Until then, all Chinese people should have um, uh, get a moderate prosperity. Um, goal which can be see, uh, seen widely as reached because I mean more than 800 million people also according to the World Bank had been lifted out of poverty so this aim widely was reached and the second centenary uh, will be in 2049 hundred years so the first one was hundred years of the founding of the Communist Party of China the next one 2049 is hundred years of founding of the People's Republic of China hundred years of the uh, country and until then he wants to have China as the leading country in the world economically culturally and so on so he, and is he very wants to be associated with that let's end with um, Stefan um, Adrian talks about China we haven't really talked about how he's viewed by Chinese people. We've done a number of shows on the human cost of China's growth. It's a tough country in spite of all its success still to live. Hard work, secret police, uh, totalitarian surveillance state, COVID, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, in your sense, Stefan, um, he's not beloved like Mao or, or even Xi Jinping. I mean, obviously, it, it's hard to make a uh, an, an exact analysis of this, but how is he viewed within China itself by the Chinese people broadly? I think the Chinese people will stand with him and behind him as long as he can guarantee um, that their wealth is at least stable uh, and growing. I think uh, one, of, one of the good things on China is that they are very working very hard uh, to to uh, to have a have a wealthy a country wealthy population and I think as long as he, as he can guarantee this he's rather stable when he will have a big economic uh, economic crisis uh, I can imagine that the whole system which in in fact is a it's a structure it's still a party structure uh, it's different from uh, Russia. In, in Russia, it's only, uh, you know, Putin and, and his people around him. But this is still a system that works in itself. So I think as long as he can guarantee wealth, he will be stable. If he will get an, into a big crisis, uh, maybe he's, he's gone uh, faster than he thinks. Yeah, and he... I think that that is indeed the crux of the matter. And I think that that conflict, if it happens, will define the 21st century. An important New book then, Xi Jinping, by my two guests, Stefan Aust and Adrian Gaiges, The Most Powerful Man in the World, an important and necessary book. Congratulations, guys. A couple Thank of you, other um, suggestions on further reading on China or Germany or otherwise. What are you guys reading these days? Actually, I show you the book I'm just reading now, which I think is a I'm very, sad. very interesting, very critical book about the climate change and all the theories. It's a very interesting book about all the questions. No, that... I haven't known that one. I'll have to get the author on the show. And um, Very good. Uh, and Adrian, what are you reading? I mean, I didn't know what you're going to ask or uh, what you're going to show, but exactly you showed the book 
already before. Kein Strittmatter. I mean, this is a German edition, but the yeah. English edition is, uh, we have been harmonized exactly about this digital dictatorship in, in, in China. This is a book which you even can read several times because it's really up to the point. 